WCBN FM Ann Arbor, where the, tr where the truth cannot, cannot be, silent. be silent. It must be a lie. Good for you. And a noisy one, too. Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel, and today Jim Shepard joins us via technological wonders of the phone. Jim, Unbelievable. <laughs> welcome to Living Writers. Welcome back. Thank you. It's good to be back. Uh, well, it's always good to hear your voice or to see you. And, and we've got Steph behind the glass um, today. Um, and today on the table, uh, we've got Jim Shepard's uh, latest collection of stories. The world to come out this January with vintage. Um, Jim, I can just imagine drivers all over Michigan pulling over so they could listen more closely. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> or going to short the... stories. What? Hold on. <laughs> I know this needs. Pull over, Mabel. <laughs> we need the full attention of exactly. all and sundry here, right? This is. I mean, all kidding aside, this is powerful stuff, Jim Shepard. <laughs> You, well, you, I'm glad all kidding is aside at uh, this point. I mean, you've you've unleashed here. This is this is um this is going to be a great hour talking about stories and um and to start with, you know what? Before, because I can see how this is going to go. <laughs> I'm gonna, I better quick stay on track for the moment, just just to get. I want to read your bio here so okay. that um. That uh, and also I have to um, just so everybody has a visual too is that I've got so many post-it notes. Steph, Steph can attest to this in this book that I can't even see what all my post-it notes mean <laughs> now. So this is going to be just a, an absurd a the, the theater of the absurd radio hour today with there you go with Jim Shepard and T Hetzel. Um, <laughs> well, you know, you'd think the bio would be in the front, and there it is. Okay, all right, <laughs> or in the back, right? It can be tricky. Jim <laughs> Shepard is the author of four previous collections, including Like You'd Understand Anyway, which won the Story Prize and was a finalist for the National Book Award, and whose short fiction has often been selected for Best American Short Stories and the Penn O'Henry Prize Stories. The most recent of his seven novels, The Book of Aaron, won the Penn New England Award, the Sophie Brody Medal for Achievement in Jewish Literature, the Harold U. Ribolo Prize for Jewish Literature, and the Clark Fiction Prize. He lives in Williamstown, Massachusetts, with his wife, the writer Karen Shepard, his three children, and three beagles, and he teaches at Williams College. That's pretty much all there is to it. Is that so? We're all we're all good with that. Yep, we're all, we're up all to good, speed, yeah. good with that. And so, and how are the beagles? 
they're sitting here uh, in my study with me even as we speak. Um, and if they happen to see a passing woodchuck, uh, things might get a little iffy in this radio interview. <gasps> That'll be great. Right now, they're all just piled up in a little pile. Uh-huh. And what are the ages and names? Uh, Dino is 13, uh, Teddy is 7, and a rescue, and Cosmo, who's the minor sociopath, is about 2, I think. <laughs> wow. So, um, so you've got them, like, an age spread there. Yeah. The idea was not to have three dogs. The idea was uh, we were happy with one beagle. Then we discovered that one was uh, going to be killed if we didn't take him in, and we took him in, and then... Uh, our daughter announced that uh, one of the great tragedies of her life was she never experienced a puppy, and so uh, in a fit of <laughs> lunacy, we got her a puppy, which meant now we were up to three beagles. <laughs> that's that's a good. That's a lot of beagles. That's, that's a lot like, of beagles. A... Fortunately, they're not uh, the barky kind of beagles, and if they were, we would have clubbed them to death years ago, probably. <laughs> hey, let's not even joke about that because this is going <laughs> over the airwaves in Michigan, and right yeah, now, he's like, I'm going to be getting letters about that. <laughs> that's right, or some calls in. Yeah, Steph's going to be on the or... phone. But actually, in Michigan, they're doing some legislation now. Apparently, people have been trying to debark their dogs. And so oh, this really? is kind of a serious matter here. The legislators are trying to say, look, you can't do that unless the vet thinks it's, like, for the dog's health. Oh, yeah, that is so, a terrible thing. Those are, like, yeah. the, those people who, like, uh, try to cut their vocal cords and stuff like that. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, that's awful. It's like get a Basenji, right? Yeah, or exactly. Yeah. Or, or just, you know, buy a rock. You know what? That's true. You shouldn't be allowed to have another being if you're going to be, you If know. you're thinking in those terms, right? If you're right. like uh, the mad scientist, the instant you get a dog, um, right. then you want to start messing with their biology. So you're, maybe you're in the wrong business as a pet owner. I feel like this is the start of another Jim Shepard story. <laughs> Isn't it? Isn't it? And and also that I should also quickly point out that these are our opinions and not the opinions of WCBN FM. There you go. Most, I you think know, you better keep assuredly. saying that throughout this whole interview. Because we're <laughs> just, I know, Stephanie, is there something we can play? Like you can Let just keep playing it? That's Jim Shepard's opinion once again. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, so okay, let's talk. Let's talk about the book. Let's talk. Okay. Um, and we can always go back to the Beagles too. I know. That's check a great in thing. with D. I know. It's so. You know, and your book Unleashed that that um, uh, poems by writers' dogs that was mm-hmm. that's always a hit on on living writers. Um, we have so many options should things grind to a halt that we're, we're really covered here. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. Um, the world to come, though. Um, let's let's talk about the story collection. Um, maybe some some simple things like. Um, how long was this in the making for and was the title story was that the the first story that that kind of became part of what you knew would be this collection or yeah um the the, the, the collection took uh, longer than um some of my collections have taken to come together but the main reason for that was um when i was uh, about two stories into it the idea for a novel came to me, um, and so I just stopped the uh, writing stories and wrote the novel, and then returned to the collection. So the the collection was kind of uh, interrupted. Was and that the, the book of normally Aaron? the way it works is I just write stories, um, happy that I found an idea for a story, and then at some point I look up from my desk and say, "Do I have enough stories to put together a collection?" and uh, one time I did that with my editor at Knopf and sent him what I thought was enough stories, and he said, no, you don't have enough stories here, actually. Um, oh. And I had something like, I don't know, 200 pages worth, 888 pages worth or something, and 
I said, well, you know, um, uh, friends of mine like Amy Hempel, they have very right. narrow books of stories. And he said, yeah, she can get away with it. You can't. <laughs> really? You're yeah. like reason to live? Like that's, yeah. The... So I was like, okay, I'll have to write another story then at that point. Um, and so normally but why the way is that? Worked, why, like why, and why didn't you, yeah. Why, why, why didn't I uh, resist? Yeah, yeah. You really don't want to be... Uh, telling your editor, you should have more enthusiasm for this project, because then your editor's like, all right, I'll have enthusiasm. So, um, you know, I think in the case of the difference that he imagined between myself and Amy was because Amy was a well-known minimalist. Right. um, The idea was, well, it makes sense that her book is very narrow, right? I mean, that's the whole aesthetic. And so the reader buying it goes, well, you know, it's like buying a book of poetry. Um, you don't say, why isn't this book of poetry fatter? Um, but I'm, Usually I you don't hear that. Was that yeah. I wasn't known as a minimalist, and then therefore there's a certain uh, length that people expect from uh, their $25 um, contribution, you know, or something like right, that. Right, right. Well, you're like the anti-minimalist. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> Except for the story that you might read for us today, later on I in know, the program. You your cards right, <laughs> which right. are only two and a half pages long. <laughs> which is the shortest story in this story collection. Um, she hastens to add. <laughs> So he won't be reading long, listeners. No, just kidding. No, no. Um, but well, but but getting back to this, um, in, in, again, in all seriousness, this in, the, uh, this anti-minimalist. Um, your stories are completely not minimal in in any way. Whether it's like just surface things, like what the story, the the page number of the story, or the the depth of the story, or like what each line is willing to do, um, and the research. Well, I think like any story, um, most of what's being communicated is being implied or evoked rather than spelled out. So even when you say, well, this is a, a kind of a maximalist short story, you're still in the presence of a short story, which is very different than a novel. Um, but one of the things that a lot of readers have said about these stories is they they seem to evoke worlds that are novel-sized. Um, and yes. That, that, I think, is what makes it feel like it's more maximalist. Um, I, that, I'd like to believe it's not that it feels like I'm just going on forever. No. As as, no, no. That's... As much as the scope of the story seems bigger than you would have at first expected. Like, oh, my God, it's the whole French Revolution in a short story, you know, that kind of thing. Right. No, that's that's not what I meant. Not, that's not <laughs> what I meant at all. In fact, right. um, a couple of weeks ago, Waiki Wang was on the program, and, and I... I was talking about how her her prose style and her present like her her late, her her debut novel chemistry is completely opposite because I was reading both of your books at the same time. Um, it's like just completely opposite. Mm. Um, and and the the thing and both both I was very happy to be reading. I, <laughs> I hasten to add, um, uh, but. So with your like let's let's talk about an aspect of that. Um okay. so the 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 being in like as you said being in the presence of the short story. Um and the and then the world evoked. So how is it with this you do an incredible amount of research it seems. Like if we wanted to look at and what's up with natural disasters, Jim, in this book? <laughs> well, you know, it used to be that um um, I just seemed like a faintly worrisome fringe figure in that regard, but now it just looks like uh, I'm somebody who reads the papers. Exactly. Exactly. And historical documents, too. Yeah, I think um, I've always been interested in um, the way natural disasters uh, allow us to sort of um, put um, 
maximum pressure on conflicts that already exist um, in these sort of human relationships. Um, and, and it also um, is a great way for somebody like me who has the emotional inner life of a 10-year-old to um, talk myself into sitting down at the desk in the first place because instead of saying, oh, I guess I'll write about uh, difficult and irresolvable um, emotions, um, which, you know, how many men do you know want to sit down and do that? Um, uh, what or women. Or go, oh, I'm writing about a, a tornado, or I'm writing about uh, one of the great, you know, floods that ever hit northeastern Australia, or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And that's a way of, um, it's also a way of allowing me to imagine that I'm keeping in contact with the notion of play, you know, that I'm, that I'm having fun doing this as well as dealing with difficult issues. And why is that important? Um, because um, it's so hard to write. You're so often confronting your own limitations that if there isn't a compensatory pleasure early on, um, you just stop and play with the beagles, essentially. <laughs> That's why they're in the room now. That's why they're like, in the room to begin for, with. You know, whenever <laughs> I get up from the desk, they're like, oh, the writing's not going well, huh? <laughs> right, right. And, and for, for example, why you also force them into the room for this radio conversation, too, right? <laughs> so there's going to be the beagles. Right now, the three of them are like, oh, you're on the radio again. That figures. <laughs> that figures. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, okay, so we've got about one minute to break. Um, uh, Jim, and so what? What are you writing right now? Like, because we, we're going to go back to the book, but just really, like, what's what's on your desk now? Um, I just finished a story that um, is is in a new uh, issue of Zoetrope. Uh, that's a um, epistolary story uh, about the very very end of the Civil War, um, and oh. I'd never, I've always been interested in the Civil War, and I've never written about it, um, but I finally. Um, got engaged with the notion of writing about it and and its usefulness as a lens um, about where we are today. When I was reading some uh, letters from um, Southern women to uh, men that they didn't even know whether they were still alive or not, and I was really struck by how um, consistently the subject of the irresolvability of the race issue uh, was coming up. and I was really startled and um, uh, sort of floored, uh, if that's not too redundant, by the way in which even in 1865, um, Americans were registering that this problem wasn't going to go away, um, even given the sacrifice of uh, you know the, the hundreds of thousands who died in the Civil War. Um, and that's the kind of uh, absolutely dispiriting revelation that I think, uh, wow, I should make a story about that because <laughs> that'll ruin everybody's day, you know, that kind of thing. Well, um, I mean, that's it's, uh, it's it's kind of a humble <laughs> of you and funny to say, but I will say um, your lead story in The World to Come, Safety Tips for Living Alone, um, I finished reading that and I began to weep. Oh, so and that wasn't because you thought I, I just there's two hours I'm not going to get back, right? It was because <laughs> I'm a faster reader than that, Jim Shepard. <laughs> what are you implying? <laughs> like, okay, let's take a short break and okay. then we'll be back and and let's talk about safety tips for living alone. All righty, come back today on the program. Jim Shepard joins us joins us via phone. <laughs> I'm going to get through this. Joins us via phone from Massachusetts. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got living writers. We'll be back. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. 
Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, I'm glad you did. Um, today on Living Writers, Jim Shepard um, joins us via phone um, from Massachusetts. Uh, Jim, thanks so much for being game for radio via phone. <laughs> oh, you know, that's the kind of guy I am. It's that kind of casual heroism you expect from me. It's true. Casual heroism. That, that should be in the bio. That should. I don't know why. Why'd you leave that out? I don't know. Um, don't let them edit that out, Jim Shepard. Um, and thanks for, <laughs> thanks for choosing the songs, too. Oh, I was happy to. Um, that was um, one of the fun aspects of this is uh, what, what four songs would you pick, essentially? Yeah, so you're DJing a little there bit you go. today. Um, okay, so let's see. So back to the book. We've got The World to Come, um, Jim Shepard's collection of short stories on the table, um, out with Vintage uh, this year. Uh, safety Tips for Living Alone, the lead story. Um, so these stories are so also um intimate that i was thinking that this was told from like the first person like you 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 use that um narrative technique um that f- many times in other stories um mm-hmm. but as i was i was uh, casually flipping <laughs> through the story it seems like this one is third person omniscient um which is uh-huh. really this is good times radio right <laughs> in case you missed english class today everybody right. gonna throw out some fancy terms yeah really fancy but um so maybe why was this the lead story and, um, and, and why was this useful? Because you're moving across many characters um, in, in, to tell this story. Yeah, I think you may have um, answered your own question in some ways because um, uh, some of my earlier collections were so uh, first-person heavy. And one of the reasons they had gotten so first-person heavy is I had um, thought I, I, need, I was doing uh, some of these projects that were so hubristic uh, I was so far going outside what I imagined to be uh, any uh, realm of authority I should have that I needed to approach the problem head on. And so I would sort of go, okay, well, if you can't re- imagine these people's voices, maybe you shouldn't be doing them. And uh, that meant that I was yes. doing uh, a, a fair preponderance of uh, first-person stories. And in this case, I wanted to, um, even though, as you say, there's a lot of intimacy to the shifting points of view, I wanted to signal... Um, early on that um, this was going to be multiple points of view and that there was going to be uh, enough flexibility for the voice to get omniscient. This also came out right after the novel that uh, had interrupted this collection, and that novel was also a very intimate single point of view, and a novel about a boy in the Jewish ghetto called The Book of Aaron, or the, the, the Jewish ghetto in Warsaw. Um, and so um, I also I felt like I wanted something that, that announced to the reader that this is a very, very different kind of project. Um, so that's part of the reason this is, becomes the lead story in the collection. That's part of the reason it's the lead story, yeah. I also, you know, people often say, how do you decide how to um, uh, order stories in a collection? And it's an interesting um, question because there is uh, obviously no um, method to it, uh, and yet there may not be any point to it as well because um, I, I don't know about you but uh, I certainly don't read story collections through from front to back but I, I sort of roam around like it's a, a box of chocolates or something which <laughs> um, you uh, do you roam you roam around in a box a giant box yeah, of chocolates yeah you know what I'll do is I'll sort of go um, oh what's that story about oh I feel like reading about something like that this time so I'll read the story three quarters of the way through or something like that you know or I'll read the end story first or whatever because you're a rebel 
Yeah, exactly. Uh, but in the saddest little ways. Right? <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, so that that means that if you are trying to figure out how to order the stories, you're also thinking, well, one obvious rule of thumb was you'd want to put stories that you think are both um, strong and representative of the collection uh, up front and at the end. Um, and so this was also a story that I thought had... Um, some of the traits of almost all of the stories, and so I thought that was another reason to, to lead with it, essentially. Hmm. And one of those traits probably would have been, is this, you know, that, that tension that I often set up with my historical stories, which is, is this a true story? Um, in some cases, obviously, you know, it's, uh, it's like, well, we know the Hindenburg crashed, but was this person on it, kind of thing? And in this case, um, it's a it's a completely true story that um, nobody knows about. Um, oh, the ocean so, of air in that is that what you mean? Is that the story? No, what I, the Hindenburg. Oh right. Oh uh, okay. But yeah, not the not not your story in here. Um, oh um, no, I mean in this case, um, a lot of these stories are are essentially true stories, right? Um, uh, the Telem- Telemachus is based on a real story, um, HMS Terrors. I mean, you know, these are all historical events, essentially. Um, and, and very often the, the way the alchemy works is the narrative spine of the thing is historically accurate, and what's going on in the interiors of the people uh, who are populating the stories I'm inventing, essentially. And sometimes I'm inventing characters as well, but a lot of the uh, characters are... are uh, the real figures as well, um, but of course, when your fiction writer is creating uh, characters based on real characters, you already have a weird kind of persona invented, which is, you know, uh, an unstable combination of uh, what we know about that person biographically, what I'm intuiting about that person, and what I'm projecting onto that person. You know. Well, and is that part of that unstable combination? Is that something that? that interests you like that oh, kind of much, feeling yeah. is something it's a great way for somebody you know a lot of people there's a certain kind of fiction writer who effortlessly um is willing to sort of get at uh their own issues you know what, what you might call the the philip roth school where you're sort of like well here's what i'm going through you know that kind of thing yeah rest in peace yeah um uh, and then I think there's another kind of fiction writer who gets at that kind of stuff um, uh, sort of obliquely by um, uh, writing up, seemingly writing about something else. Um, the the Oscar Wilde line that um, I quote to my students on that subject is, uh, Wilde once said, a man is least himself when he speaks in his own voice. Give him a mask and he'll tell you the truth. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's a good line. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, though it's kind of odd to think about Oscar Wilde as a poster boy for emotional honesty, but even so, even so, and so is that, and that's the side that you are more. On. Yeah, I, I, I again partially because I want to engage that sense of play and and not and, and sort of fool myself into thinking that I'm not sitting down in order to wrestle with uh, the emotional issues that are troubling me. Um, I'll say, well, you're writing about something really interesting. And I also will tell myself with some um, uh, justification that, um, well, you're also learning about the world. And so even if the story or the novel doesn't work, uh, you still learned a lot of interesting stuff. And you're, maybe you're a more interesting person now, you know. And, and so, and that speaks to the amount of research you do, because haven't, haven't people also said to you, hey, Jim, the amount of research that you're kind of putting in 
to this story is something that maybe many people might do for a novel. <laughs> well, in fact, uh, our mutual friend, Ron Hansen, once got a look at um, the, my research folders for a short story, uh, again, about the French Revolution, a short story I wrote called Sanfarine. And he said, you're nuts. He goes, I could get a trilogy out of what you get a short story. <laughs> he's such a bragger. Yeah, well, and he, I, he's also much more of an efficient uh, pack rat, you know, so <laughs> Ron will say, if I did all this work, I'm going to uh, get a certain amount of money back on this. Oh, um, completely, completely. I take a sort of perverse pride in putting less food on my children's plates. You know? <laughs> right, right. Like, that's more Robert, Robert Kennedy of you. Or, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, I'm watching too many documentaries right yeah, now. Yeah, really. Take that back. I take that back. Okay. So, um, so also, uh, with safety tips for living alone, I love how, like, um, partway, well, maybe towards... Like definitely past the the midpoint, I would say you you find like the like where the title comes from. Um, I I love how the titles don't also um, they it almost works like how a, a title for a poem works um, mm. with your short stories. Um, yeah, I like to have the title um, emerge sort of organically from the, the narrative itself. So. I've always, you know, one of the things I think writers tend to do is write the kind of stories that they like to read. And um, one of the uh, pleasures I've always had with that kind of experience is when you're like, what does this title mean? And you're reading along and you go, oh, that's so great. It just surfaced <laughs> right in the middle there, you know, and that makes perfect sense, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. No, I, yeah, me too. I think I take pleasure in that, definitely. Um, and with this story, do you mind, Jim, would you mind if I... Um, read the last line of the story? I, I wouldn't, no, because I, I have a suspicion you're not ruining it for a single person in Michigan. <laughs> Thank you, Jim. Um, <laughs> and so, let's see. Okay, I'm going to read the last two lines. Okay. And once they did, they saw, like a line across the sky, the thin white edge of the top of the wave. And they recognized it as the implacability that would no longer indulge their mistakes and would sweep from them all they had ever loved. And I think with that line, you begin to realize why major motion pictures haven't been made of a lot of my stories. <laughs> <laughs> and perhaps, and perhaps why I was weeping. <laughs> I don't know if anyone was there for the first quarter of the program. You will understand that. Yeah. No, it's something. So, so what you, what I think you, what you do with these stories, and w w which I think certainly is shown in this lead story, safety tips for living alone, is this this almost this quiet accumulation of intense emotion. Yeah, I think that's a lovely way of putting what I aspire to. Anyway, uh, that that way in which a story, especially because a story seems in some ways so slight, you know, it doesn't make kind of some of the imperious demands that a novel makes of importance. I like the way stories can sneak up on you in that regard, the way you can think, well, I'm just going to have a nice little experience here and then suddenly feel um, flattened. Um, yes. Uh, and, and that um, quality of, well, that was certainly more than I bargained for is, is something um, that I aspire to in all of my <laughs> interactions in the world. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. And is that what you're, is that when you're constructing this, how that's what you're searching for in the story itself? Um, I think what I'm doing is, I'm, uh, as I'm working my way through it, uh, in the early stages, I'm sort of going, so why, does this, why has this stuck with me so powerfully, right? 
um, there are a lot of ideas that seem like objectively a good idea for a story, but uh, many of them were uh, were individually not interested in, and others we can't we can't forget. And um, the reason we can't forget it has something to do with how emotionally important it is to us, and um, that means that um, we need to try and figure out why that is. And for most writers, myself included, I think that's a process not of sitting in a chair and contemplating, but of of uh, writing um, and and having what you're inventing teach you um and so i'm proceeding through the story learning uh in some ways uh, uh just how fraught some of this stuff is and that's starting to lead me towards uh a possible ending um of the sort that you would find moving um but in the case of a story like this too what's interesting um about dealing with historical events is you have the narrative framework in in place you know what happened um and you're not going to change that or at least i'm not going to change it when i write stories like this so then it becomes given that these are the events that have to happen um what what's going to be individual about this or how are you going to end this story right um so you know if if you write a story about um the maiden voyage of the Titanic, uh, most of your plot elements would seem to be in place. Um, but the the key um, phrase there is seem to be. It turns out that it makes a huge difference uh, what your story is going to look like depending on who you're focused on. And, um, and, and Jim, just before, before the break, for um, safety tips for living alone, how did you, could you just quickly say what the event is and how, sure. you, how you found um, it? It turns out that in 19, the, the, um, the, when, when the U.S. Air Force was setting up the um, uh, deterrent shield uh, for um, nuclear deterrence, they set up a series of radar stations across the northern boundaries of uh, North America, but nobody remembered that um, they needed to do the same thing across the Atlantic. And um, that meant that they had um, no radar um, coverage uh, for an attack that was coming directly across the Atlantic, and they decided the way the, uh, because at that point radar arrays were too big to put on ships or planes, um, they decided they would put them on onshore, uh, offshore platforms of the sort that they built in the Gulf of Mexico for um, for, for oil? oil drilling. Yeah. And the problem was uh, the offshore platforms had never been built in water that deep and had never been built in water as ferocious as the North Atlantic. And so in 1961, one of those platforms sank in a storm um, with the loss of 30 people on it. And I wrote about how that happened, essentially. And, okay, and on that note, I, was that Cosmo, maybe? We'll that take, was, yeah, one of the dogs. We'll take a short break, and then we'll, <laughs> okay. be, we'll be back. Um, and today on Living Writers, Jim Shepard joins us via phone from Massachusetts. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be back. Anymore. Thought I'd visit the club. Got as far as the door. They'd have asked me about your daddy. Don't get around 
And we're back. Today on Living Writers, Jim Shepard joins us via phone. Um, the book, The World to Come, Stories. Um, Jim, thanks so much <laughs> for talking today. Um, so so um, I, we should definitely hear um, the story, I think. Um, but before we do that, um, how did you, so how did you come across this historical, um, like, note that of this collapse that in 1961 with this loss of um, the 31 It's actually a, a great example of how a lot of my stories originate. Um, I was reading about something else, as I often am. I mean, I end up, I, I end up reading all sorts of uh, utterly strange things. And when I do, um, I, I, I'm, I'm keeping an eye out for why it interests me in the first place. Um, and... Um, in this case, I was reading about the dew line, which is the distant early warning system in the north, and I was thinking, well, maybe it would be interesting because to write about because those poor guys were on station in these incredibly um, remote areas for you know uh, months at a time, just looking at a little radar screen, trying to prevent World War III from happening. So there's this weird combination of you know being having this incredibly important job that mostly involves stupefying boredom and isolation. Um, and I was seems... reading about it and, and didn't come across uh, anything that was uh, triggering anything that made me want to write about it because stupefying boredom turns out to be not the best subject <laughs> for a story. Um, and then I came across a line where somebody said, well, you know, as bad as this was, at least it wasn't as bad as one of those towers out in the Atlantic. And I was, I thought, like, what towers out in the Atlantic? I hadn't even heard of these things. Right. So then I went and researched it. Um, and once I researched it, um, I was like, oh, my God, why didn't I know about this? Um, <laughs> and so then I started researching it more. And, and, of course, it turned out that part of the reason it's such a well-kept secret, and after the story appeared, I actually got letters from Air Force personnel who said, I didn't know this story. How did I not know this yeah, story? Yeah, yeah. And um, it turned out that uh, there was a, 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 a sort of a perfect storm of events conspired to keep it a secret. One was, of course, the Air Force had no desire to publicize it. But uh, the, the media would not have gone along with um, burying the story, except that it ha the, this, the tower sank right about exactly at the time of John F. Kennedy's inauguration. Um, and oh. I think everybody thought, well, that's kind of a downer story. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, it, you know, it got a little bit of press, but it mostly nobody, none of the national uh, presses picked it up because they were all like, yeah, this is not the tone we want to set here. Um, so it just disappeared from history. And And so, in a way, it gives also, like writing the story also matters because I also said that when I, I couldn't believe that this is, it felt, it felt so true. I knew that this was something that you were connecting to an actual event. Mm -hmm. Um, and I couldn't believe I didn't know about it. And, yeah. and, and I, and I think that that's one of the things that, um, both nonfiction and fiction writing can do, right. Is remind us of how much is going on in the world that, uh, we're simply overlooking at any given moment, you know? If, yeah. In this moment now, in yeah. this moment now. Um, well, geez. Okay. Well, how to cheer up. Let's see. <laughs> um, uh, I, I do think it's interesting that even as we've been talking, you know, and, and, and joking, um, and you saying what it takes to get you to sit down to write these stories and to kind of trick yourself and needing a sense of play. It, it's interesting to me how often we come back to this emotion, like this, mm -hmm. and this, 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 this feeling, um, like that, 
uh, and and empathy because then it's like it's emotion in the writer that's coming through in these stories um but it, again in a very quiet way so like you say it's kind of creeping up on you when you're sitting there writing Jim, I think that's... Yeah, and that, that process is then hopefully replicated in the reader, right? Yeah. Uh, oh, I thought I was just learning these details about this crazy place, but it turns out the more I get involved in this, the more invested I am in what these people are going through, and before I know it, their fates are really important to me, you know? And it sounds like you're also, in, in the research, you're, you're, you're consciously seeking out first-person accounts, whether they're letters or... Um, like you said, I often something. am because that's where you learn all sorts of um, inadvertent emotional stuff, right? You're, because when you're trying in the first person to just say what happened, even if you think that's all you're doing, you're also conveying a very powerful sense of uh, who you are and how you operate emotionally. And that, I think, is, is really wonderfully useful for the fiction writer because that provides the humanity that underpins other, what would otherwise be just history or science, you know? And when do you know that you feel that you're in that character voice mind? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I've, I've done lots and lots of research on subjects that I thought were fascinating and then discovered that I really didn't feel like I resonated enough with the sensibilities involved that I was going to be able to inhabit a, uh, enough to write a story. Um, I, I once spent about six months reading about Charles Lindbergh, who certainly had a spectacularly um, um, interesting life. Um, and I got to a point where I felt like I understood him the way a historian or a biographer would understand him, um, which is not to say comprehensively, but it, but it is to say pretty well. And I also thought, yeah, I, don't, I, I don't feel like there's enough, if you imagine the process being like a Venn diagram where some important part of my emotional life has to overlap with his emotional life. Mm. I didn't feel like there was enough of an overlap that I could write about him. And so I ended up not writing anything. And what prevented me from feeling, again, as we were talking about earlier, what prevented me from feeling like I wanted to just lie face down on the floor in despair was that it didn't feel like entirely lost time. It felt like I got to read about something interesting and I was now a more interesting human being because of it. And and I'm not um, I'm not unconvinced that there won't be some thread that that comes into some story. Yeah, and there's also that right. You never know what you're going to use somewhere else for some other reason. So, I mean, I teased Ron about being such a pack rat, but most writers store stuff yes. away and use it where they least you know expect they're going to. <laughs> yeah, and quick note: any of the teasing is is made with. <laughs> Love and respect, <laughs> too, <laughs> yeah, actually. Otherwise, it wouldn't even exist. Um, right. So, and so something you also uh, said, Jim, it reminded me of this this note that I wrote down, how you are able to, because of, like, the research and what you're, you're learning and what's engaging you, it, it's the information that then you convey within a story um, is then you're able to do it so seamlessly and with quite a bit of information, I might say. Because you know how sometimes, I don't know, there's been some novels where I will maybe drift over certain sections sometimes. 
<laughs> won't name any names. Um, but right. for example, um, it was like, just as I like, so what do I mean by this? Like in, in the story, positive train control, um, on page 164 for listeners who have a copy in our following along, <laughs> um, uh, there's there, the character is, is, is on a train and there's a, a part where, um, they're out on a run, um, a hauling a volatile um, cargo, um, and and it's you know there's there's a section where it's eight years ago as part of the deregulation fiesta the statesman who ran DC passed what they with their sense of humor call the Rail Safety Improvement Act which announced among other things that the federal government was ceding authority for over a hundred thousand rail bridges across the country to corporate or municipal <laughs> owners. This is a long sentence actually. I didn't see that before I started. Right. But there's a lot of things that's happened that's happening here. One, it's in the voice of your character. So right. we're, we're learning more about the humor, like what you were just talking about basically like how mm-hmm. things are constructed right um through this this character's voice and feeling um plus like what you're writing about here is also something that even though it's his- a historical uh event connects very much to today like how like um our congress names things ridiculously you know like right. the right to work act or so right. so um and then and so you're learning about all these things and then we see like the seeds of what like is happening now with our bridges you know in the news like you said reading today's news where things infrastructure is failing you know all over the country i don't right. know why i like did a laugh then i think it's just because like otherwise we'd be in a heap right um and then your next paragraph you say see if you can guess what happened next like there's a way that then you immediately you've got the reader by the throat jim mm-hmm. and i think part of that is um you know when you're reading uh, that kind of information dump in some ways, oh, my God, this is so much exposition, uh, part of the way you decide whether you care or not is whether somebody else seems to urgently care about that information and why they do, right? And so one of the things I tell my writing students is that in- ex- exposition without any kind of emotional context is trivia, essentially. But yes. exposition with emotional content is is quite interesting. And, and uh, you know, the way that works is if someone starts saying to you, uh, starts quoting you statistics um, on a bar stool, you very quickly go, why are you telling me this? Um, but if someone says to you, you know, my mother is in a nursing home, and here's what happens in nursing homes, and it's driving me crazy, you know, suddenly you're thinking, well, I want to know more about what's happening in nursing homes, you know. Um, and so as you're pointing out in those moments when you're getting a huge amount of in- just sheer information, you're also getting um, a, both a funny and a... Um, a politically committed sense of how much this is enraging him and how much he's trying to keep a lid on his sense that this absurdity is killing us, you know, that kind of thing. And so, and with this, because I love trains, so I was... I was thrilled to see the title of this of this story in the collection. Although I will say, I did read it one story after the other. There you go. <laughs> thinking, you, thinking you had a plan, I wasn't roaming through the chocolates. Um, but uh, with this one, how? When you started off with this, there's a complicated family matter. Um, how how important was that in shaping the the character? Was it to get it was in- quite important in shaping the character, but it was the, the story began with um, the larger subject. The story began with my um, horror and fascination with what happened in Quebec when one of those oil trains blew up and and essentially flattened the whole town, and then discovering that. Um, 
because of all sorts of uh, uh, lamentable aspects of our government, we're setting ourselves up for the same kind of accident. I sort of wanted to uh, do what I could to sound the alarm, even though there's something ludicrous about trying to sound the alarm in America in a short story, since <laughs> it's a little bit like saying, you know, I have to put an end to this, so I'm going to write a, uh, a villanelle, and that should, <laughs> you know, that should straighten out everybody. Don't, um, don't throw the poets under the bus, Jim. Exactly. But, you know, all I can do is what I uh, can do. And so right. I right. thought, I want to write about this. Um, and then having decided that I was going to write about it, I also had to uh, essentially uh, say to myself, well, what is this besides the Jeremiah about the state of uh, deregulation in the train industry? And I thought, okay, well, these are the issues that allow somebody, or this, these are sort of the tensions that would allow somebody in that situation to both be complicit in it and and uh, want to uh, resist it, and that led very quickly to the kind of uh, family life that the person would have, and then suddenly I had a a way of linking the micro and the macro, essentially. Jim Shepard, it's so I'm loving talking with you today. Oh, good. We're going to take a short break, um, and then we'll be back um, for our last quarter um, today on the program. Jim Shepard joins us via phone. Um, the world to come. His stories out with Vintage Now. I'm T Hetzel. We'll be back. Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hutzel. Today on the program, Jim Shepard joins us via phone. The world to come. Stories. Book of stories. Um, so, so Jim. Um, yes. I, I, think, I, think we should, I think we shouldn't talk yet <laughs> together. I think you should read because otherwise we're not going to get to it. Okay. I like, the, I, I like your attitude. For um, once. So I'll read uh, all of this uh, extremely short story called Cretan Love Song, and it takes, oh, I don't know, three or four minutes. It's about uh, two and a half, maybe two pages in total, um, and it goes like this. Um, imagine you're part of the Minoan civilization, just hanging out with your feet painted face down by the water's edge on the north shore of Crete, circa 1600 B.C., biting flies knit the breeze around your head. Wavelets slap discreetly ashore. When the volcanic island of Thera detonates 70 miles to the north, the concussion, even where you're standing, knocks passing waterfowl out of the air. Oxen are jolted to their knees. Back where Thera used to be, more than 35 cubic miles of the equivalent of dense rock have been blown out of the water and up into the troposphere. That's all of Manhattan and the bedrock beneath it concussing upward 30,000 feet. It's as if something has convulsed the horizon and churned the bowl of the sky above. What you're looking at, no one in recorded history has ever seen before or since. Long before the blast column has reached the upper atmosphere, the shock wave coalesces in a grim line that radiates from the outer edge of your field of vision all the way to your little inlet. The oxen, still on their knees, low in terror and struggle to regain their footing. 
your boy, your primary responsibility seems to have slipped from your grasp. Everyone just gapes while the surge flashes across the last of the distance, and when it hits, you're knocked flat like the oxen, the palms above and around you stripped of their leaves in a roaring turmoil of wind and sand. The woman beside you is on her hands and knees. The infant she'd been holding is face down and crying nearby at the end of a swaddling cloth that apparently unspooled in the impact. One ox is up and lumbering inland. Off the beach, a dark blue band races like a furrow back out to sea. Your boy calls to you through, a li- through air alive with grit and glittering in the sun. He has only one eye open, which may make the view a little less painful. Once the undersea furrow finally aligns with the farthest edge of the sea, it holds steady for a moment. Your boy is still calling. The infant is still crying. Then the horizon line darkens still more and widens, all of this accompanied by a continuous rolling thunder that seems to emanate from somewhere beyond the curve of the earth. Another ox has gotten to its feet and bulled in panic past its handler. It's only when you look to the east and west that you realize the band is widening because it's rising into a wave whose size is without precedent. At 60 miles away, it already appears an inch tall, its upper edge frayed and filigreed and white. Its reverberations are already oscillating through your hands and feet. You have time to run, but unless you're able to cover half the island in the next four minutes, you might as well stay where you are. Your boy finds you, since you've done so little to find him. He asks what's happening. He asks what you're going to do. He asks as if the very extent of your love and responsibility might carry with it sufficient power to avert even something like this. He reminds you that you have to run, and you understand him to mean that though you won't reach safety, you could maybe reach your home, his mother, and your wife. In the interval you have left, you might even make clear with just a moment's embrace and the time to hold her face still and engage her eyes that despite your lassitude and arrogance and petulance and selfishness and pettiness, she's granted you a gift for which you've never adequately expressed your joy. She's buoyed and nurtured and weathered your despotism and continued to envision what you could have become rather than what you are. She's put wings to your feet for the entirety of your lives together and with them you run. Your boy mostly keeps pace, clutching at your arm when you begin to pull away. He's the one who got you moving, but is now receding, and you reach back your hand at his cry. The wave behind you is an all-enveloping sonic domain. The road before you is one you've traversed a thousand times. The woman waiting in the courtyard is your best chance to accomplish one more panegyric before the world upheaves and confirms that whatever other self-renovations you may have had planned... Your time is gone. Thank, thank you, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> Did you catch the beagle barking in the middle? Yeah. <laughs> like, run. They love this story. Run. Yeah, they're like, read it again. Yeah, read. they're like, another tidal wave. Oh, good. <laughs> more, more natural disaster. Right. More, bring it on, because we're going <laughs> to find the emotion. Exactly. <laughs> Um, and so the end so the uh well let's talk title and last line uh for this so Cretan love song um if you were roaming through the box of chocolates you might think this one might be more uplifting (laughs) you might and in fact I think I would say that ending is kind of uplifting given that um it's talking about the end of a civilization uh 
But that's a good example also of where some of these stories come from, right? Um, I mean, I, that, I'm writing about the, the, you know, the biggest uh, volcanic eruption in recorded history, the Santorini eruption, and I do all oh. this research on it, and I imagine I'm going to do a very long story. Um, and then I, the more I'm working on the design for it, the more I'm thinking, this is really cheesy. You know, it's like we're all sitting around Crete having our, eating our olives, and meanwhile there are rumblings in the distance. Um, and then it occurred to me that really the way a lot of these events happen is you're sort of living your life, and then suddenly you have just a few minutes uh, before everything is over, especially um, in the ancient world where there was nothing like any kind of, um, you know, um, warning that anything was going to happen. And that suddenly um, allowed me all sorts of emotional access to the ways in which, you know, with the people we care about most, uh, we often wait until the last minute to let them know how important they've been, you know? Yes. um, Because when I read the story alone, I didn't have this sense. I was within the story wholly. um, But hearing you read it, and after having also diligently looked through the acknowledgments (laughs) and the dedication, I think that... um, now hearing you read it i was hearing this is a way to talk to karen in some way i mean it is a love song um it's just um in my case you know as weird uh, as a love song for me would be i think right it just fits (laughs) (laughs) it just fits okay so um so last lines um uh don't worry, I won't go through every story and, and read all of them um, as spoilers, everybody out there. But um, uh, like, uh, so for for you with the last lines, because we talked about this a little bit earlier in the, in the program, um, building to that and kind of discovering, finding, finding it. Um, yeah. So and to and to also mention Amy Hempel, she sometimes says she'll have a line and she writes to it. But it sounds yeah. like you are discovering it. Like, what, can you talk about your last lines? Yeah, the difference. I mean, Amy has that last line, and she knows that's exactly what the line is going to be. And her task is to figure out how to get there. Um, and I'm in a different position in that I I know in a in a pretty clear way what the general emotional position the general emotional position and narrative position at the end of the story is likely to be, especially since I'm often writing about catastrophe. Um, But then it becomes what within that general position um, that's quite particular and specific to this narrator is going to surprise me. Uh, What's going to, what what don't I know yet? But how can you, but how can you let that in? Like, you know what I mean? Like to be surprised, like what are you cultivating to get that? Well, I'm trying to, uh, like I was saying before, I'm trying to remember that I'm teaching myself as I'm going rather than I'm just laying out a series right. of steps that I've already, you know, uh, planned like a virtuoso or something like <laughs> right. that. Um, so it's not as though I'm going, ah, ha, ha, this is where I make the marvelous turn where there's an epiphany. <laughs> it's like I'm, I'm writing and I'm going, oh, my God, you know what's bother- really bothering this guy? You know, that kind of thing. And so there's, there's still a discovery there. And, and what that means is that, um, you know, in the case of myself and Amy, we're just getting stuck in different processes, right? I mean, she's going... I know where I want to get there, but I don't. I can't figure out how to get there. And and I'm going. Um, what 
what about this don't I understand yet? You know, what do I, what do I need to figure out that's going to give me what the very last gestures are in some ways? I'm also, when I'm writing about um, events like this, I'm, I'm setting up a little um, game in the reader's mind as well, because the reader knows... Uh, even in a story this brief, the reader's going, well, how, how on earth are you going to end this? <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, if you're writing about catastrophe, you would seem to have only one of two options. Um, and I'm interested in the way the reader um, registers that on some level and goes, well, let's see how he solves this particular aesthetic problem. Um, you know, going back to my Titanic example, if if I say this, my story's about... Um, the Titanic, you think, well, that, that only gives him two ways of ending the story. Either his character dies on the Titanic or survives the Titanic. But it turns out that I have an infinite number of ways of ending that story. And that's a pleasing surprise for the reader to have, I think. Well, Jim, we're, we're drawing near to the end of our time um, okay. uh, for this installment of right. the Jim Shepard and T. Hetzel conversational series. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, hope, I hope there's more to come. Um, I hope so, too. <laughs> uh, thanks for saying that. Um, so, The World to Come, the title story in the collection, um, how did you know that that, because you also mentioned at a certain point in our conversation that um, you want the lead story and the last story to be representative of the stories, so it speaks mm-hmm. to the fact that you do have the sense of a group, that these right. are, a, there's a togetherness here. So, The World to Come, um, I, we've got like about 30 seconds, <laughs> um, <laughs> just to throw you on the spot here. <laughs> um, why, why was this the, the title story? Um, you know, um, there's a way in which you also know that whatever's going to be the title story is going to get a lot of attention. And so you want the title story to be one of the stories of which you're the most proud, as well as uh, you think this also um, is very much like my other stories. And that story, uh, which is about two young women on the frontier in western New York in the middle 19th century, um, I thought was really useful for the way it scaled down the notion of catastrophe so that it reminded the reader that for uh, people with a certain set of um, constraints on them, um, a catastrophe can be a very, very small event as opposed to a gigantic event. And in this case, it's a woman who's uh, spectacularly isolated, um, discovering that the one friend that she's met who feels to her like a soulmate is going to move away. Um, and where does that leave her in the frontier? Jim Shepard, I'm glad you're in the world. And I'm glad you are too, T. And I look forward to talking with you again one day and seeing you one day. Come, come, come on by. Let's go to Ashley's. All right. I'll be over tomorrow. Okay. <laughs> Today on the program, Jim Shepard, his collection of short stories or long stories, too. Actually, all shapes and sizes of stories. <laughs> um, and oh, and goodbye to the, the Beagles, too, Jim. All right. The Beagles say goodbye. <laughs> um, the world to come. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time.
out. Remember, consult your doctor before beginning this or any exercise routine. The creators, producers, participants, and distributors of this program do not assume liability or loss in connection with the exercises and instructions herein. Not all exercises are suitable for everyone, and this or other exercise programs may result in injury. To reduce the risk of injury, in your case, consult your doctor before